handouts, which you'll find at the back wall on the wall file there, help provide hopefully a little bit of assistance as we work our way through our content this morning. We're in our ninth week of this particular class of what we're calling um, Considering One Another, a church in covenant together as we're making our way through this particular church covenant, taking time to kind of unpack each clause and see how it's a helpful summary of what the scriptures teach uh, concerning a church together, caring for one another. And so uh, we'll continue this morning, and this morning's theme or focus is uh, the particular clause concerning a church working together for gospel ministry. In preparation for this this week, I was just kind of reading back through all of this and reminded of how much of this church covenant, as it summarizes biblical teaching, is emphasizing one particular aspect of who we are as Christ's church, and it's this word, responsibility. Um, there is a God-given responsibility for church members and for a church particularly to carry the gospel forward. And this wonderful privilege that we have been given that Christ's resurrection, the Great Commission announcement to go, and that what has been placed into our hands is this great stewardship of the furtherance, the sustaining, the supporting of gospel ministry. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. And the last couple of weeks we've been zeroing in specifically really concerning the health of a particular church. In order for that mission to go forward, there's something that's required of a church, the health of the church, the ongoing care of the church, while it's most definitely overseen by the elders, what we've been seeing is that it's not the responsibility of the elders alone. Um, to remind ourselves of this and kind of set the tone for where we're going to go this morning, let's open up into our Bibles into Ephesians chapter 4. As we're thinking through, just kind of setting this all within the context of, okay, we have a, a church has a particular responsibility and while the elders play a part in that, they are not exclusive in that responsibility. So how do those pieces fit together? Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Hopefully what we're familiar with here and what we're reminding ourselves of God's wisdom and how the church is strengthened and how gospel ministry is sustained. That there is a peace in which God has given gifts to the church and he lists several offices there on the front end. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, pastors. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then he goes on to talk about and unpack that equipping aspect to where that the body is being built up in love. 
So when we're talking about responsibility, it's, what we're saying is it's not the responsibility of the elders alone. It's under the oversight and the word ministry of the elders, but it is ultimately carried out by the body itself. And so it's the same emphasis that's summarized in this particular clause of the church covenant. You should have there and uh, written out there on the first page. A faithful gospel ministry is continued and sustained through the participation of its members. And then specifically, the phrase we're considering this morning, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of break that sentence up into the two emphases that are there. Striving for a faithful gospel ministry, thinking through the responsibility of the church to guard the gospel, and then we'll look secondly at the marks of a faithful church when it talks about sustaining a gospel ministry. So what do we mean here? Why does this church covenant take this emphasis in summarizing the scriptures to say that a church should work together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry. What is, what is underneath that, and what's the impetus there? I think to understand this and get it, really the emphasis here, it'd be helpful to zoom out a bit. We're here in the New Testament, we're here in Ephesians, we're here considering these scriptures, but let's wide-angle lens this for a moment and consider the overall redemptive arc of what's been happening within the understanding of God's saving of his people to himself and see how this particular responsibilities of a church member is placed within uh, the broader context of scripture. And by that, I mean, go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis two. God tells Adam to work and to secondly, watch over the garden. This is Genesis two, verse 15, Adam, you're to work and to watch over what I am giving to you to steward. This is interesting, and it's the very same job description that God would give to Israel's priests later on to work and to watch over the temple or the tabernacle at that point, ensuring that it was consecrated to the Lord and ordered according to the instruction of the Lord. The priests were charged with naming certain things as clean or unclean, holy or unholy, Similar to how Adam was charged with naming certain things, this thread continues. Adam's priestly work to maintain the garden, to protect the garden as a holy place, as the dwelling place of God, it, it continues with these priests as they're to maintain and guard this particular dwelling place of God where God meets with his people and they with them. There's this priestly aspect to Adam's ministry. There's this priestly aspect, obviously, to the priests by their very name, there is this understanding that they're to rule and they are to guard, to work, and to watch. And so Bible students have noticed how Adam has this kind of priest-king responsibility. He's a priest and what he's to work and watch over, and he's a king in that he's given authority, a stewardship, a mediated authority, to watch over what God has given to him. Now where this gets particularly interesting is when we see that Okay, God does that, and then he forms a new creation. There's the garden, there's the temple, and then he, this thing called the new covenant, the church. And this new creation formed by word and spirit, and wouldn't you know that there's these same emphases placed 
within this new creation as well. Certain people stewarded to work and to watch, to tend and to keep, to even name what is clean and what is unclean, what is sin and what is righteousness, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. I think you can see what I'm getting at in that God has given to us as members of this new covenant the same sort of responsibility as being these priest kings to work and to watch over the stewardship that we've been given in order to fulfill God's purposes and and bring him glory. And so the dwelling place of God's people, the church, this tabernacle, becomes this place where we work and watch. I think this becomes even more explicit when you remember certain scriptures like um, Second, excuse me, First Peter chapter two. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This understanding that God is doing something similar to what we saw him do in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is the place where I will especially make myself known. This is where I will meet with my people. This is where my glory will be revealed. And we see that place happens to be his body, his church. So it should not be surprising to us then that God continues that same commission saying, work and watch, tend and keep. So let's put a sharper point on this and say, okay, what does a priest king actually do? How was Adam supposed to carry out his responsibilities? What were the priests commissioned to do? What are we commissioned to do? Well, by working and cultivating and pushing out the boundaries of the garden, Adam was in a sense exercising kingly duties. And by watching over the garden, keeping it consecrated to the Lord, his purposes were priestly in that sense. And so can you already kind of connect some dots here in what what we're getting at? Christians are, what we're saying, the priest kings of the new covenant. And so we're to watch and work over something as well. And that would be his church, the temple of the new covenant, where God makes his presence especially known as he is amongst his people, just like in Adam's garden and Israel's temple thinking of um, even Matthew 18, where Christ gives that instruction. He says, where two or three are gathered there in my name, I am there in their midst. I am among them. So what we're getting at, and just kind of laying this broad, big, wide-angle lens out here first, is that the church, members of Christ's church, are to work and to watch over the church. That's what we started by saying It's overseen by the elders, but it's not solely, only the responsibility of pastors or elders. That Christ has given that responsibility to his new covenant members. So, in the same way, our priestly responsibilities include this naming, working, watching kind of responsibilities. Let's zoom in a little more. What does that actually mean? (laughs) What does that actually look like? In short... The New Testament affirms that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, enabling every believer to separate the true gospel from the false gospel, a true knowledge of God 
from a false knowledge of God. They're responsible to be the priest kings, and they're enabled to do so. That's what's consistent throughout Scripture, responsibility and enablement. And so God says to his church, you are responsible, but you're also equipped. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. I've given you my word. And so because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of the scriptures, we have what we need to be responsible to work and to watch, to tend and to keep, to be faithful priest kings in this new covenant. And so more specifically, I think as it is there in uh, your handout over to page two, the responsibility and the enablement, it revolves around a what and a who. This is the particular responsibility that we have as members of Christ's church dealing with a what question and a who question. Here's what I mean. The first is a what of the gospel. What are we watching over? What are we tending? What are we working? What are we keeping? Well, members of Christ's church are responsible to and able to affirm what counts as sound doctrine. This is wonderfully refreshing. And this is wonderfully good news. We'll get into this why a little bit more when we think through the Reformation and why this, was, this priesthood of all believers was so central to much of Luther and Calvin's uh, emphasis. Members of Christ's church are responsible and able to affirm what counts as sound doctrine. Um, think of a couple places. First, first John chapter 4 is one where John's concerned there that you know, his dear children would be walking in the truth. He tells his readers, if you want to use the word ordinary Christians, he's just writing to believers, to test the spirits. Remember, everything that you're hearing is not necessarily true, and he has this concern about those who are preaching that Christ didn't come in the flesh, and he has strong language saying that they're actually anti-Christ and, and what they're teaching. And he doesn't tell them, hey, you need to go to um, the, the professors and the academics of the day to help you decipher what that is. He tells them directly, test the spirits. Understand what is sound doctrine. And understand that if anybody does not testify that Christ has come in the flesh, he's a false teacher. He's writing to Christians telling that you have the ability and the responsibility to discern sound doctrine from false doctrine. You can think of also Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 as Peter writes to believers that they can keep guard between what is false teaching and what is true teaching. That they have this ability and responsibility to listen, to watch, and discern that is true, that is false. That is in line with the, God's word, that is out of line. So saints don't need specialized seminary degrees to discern between good teaching. They don't need to be beholden to certain gurus who unlock the mysteries of the scripture and then bring it down to the common people and say, this is the word of the Lord. Saints, because of their standing in Christ, the sufficiency of scripture and the ministry of the Holy Spirit are able to answer the what question. What is sound doctrine? What is the gospel? What is a false gospel? And so as we watch and we work, we understand that part of our responsibility as priest kings is to answer the what question. What is true? But there's a second responsibility, a second question that has to do with the who. The who of the gospel. Members of Christ's church are responsible and able to affirm who belongs 
to the gospel and to God. Meaning, we should be able to assess one another's professions of faith, listening for and looking for the marks of grace and the fruit of the gospel. Because we're clear and able to be clear on what sound doctrine is, the what, we're then able to carry that out and say, well, that should look like this. They're not disconnected. They're related. So let's mark out a few portions of scripture that make this even more explicit. Um, Turn over to Matthew 18. How is the church responsible to guard the who of the gospel? Listen to Christ's instruction here in Matthew 18, perhaps a familiar portion of scripture. Pick up in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What do we see here? We see that Jesus gives the local church final authority in the making determinations within the church regarding who is in and who is out. That's essentially what tell it to the church, and then when he goes on to say um, that if he refuses to listen to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile. In the sense that he is outside of us. There are those who have professed faith and are saying we are trusting in this Christ, and there are those who are not. The body, by Christ's authority and teaching, who has the final authority to say not only what is sound doctrine, but who belongs, is given to the church, priest kings. Tending, working, watching, naming, making decisions. This is given to the church. We could also go to uh, 1 Corinthians 5. This is a helpful portion as well. Let's turn over there. 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter, the whole, what is it, 13 verses. A part of Paul's reasoning and, and teaching here. But the first paragraph or so gives us what we're trying to draw forth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, church at Corinth, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in the spirit, and as present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled, gathering, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a couple of implications here that are really important. Who is Paul? Well, he's an apostle. He's one of the unique men to this period in time, not replicated or continuing on at any other point in church history, commissioned by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve this office as apostle. 
Paul, in this situation, could have pulled rank and said, I'm an apostle, you need to deal with this. He didn't do that. Nor did he write and say, hey, pastors at the church of Corinth, figure yourselves out. What are you doing? He didn't do that. He wrote to the entire church at Corinth and said, look, I've already come to a conclusion here but I'm not going to usurp the authority that you have been given as Christ's church. I'm commissioning you and I'm encouraging you to please, as the authority that Christ has given, deal with this unrepentant sinner in your midst. The authority of Christ's church remains here, even under the instruction of Paul, because they're the priest kings, because they've been commissioned to work and to watch, to tend and to keep. That is God's design. We could also go to, to um, turn over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. It gets even more explicit here. Is Paul essentially tells the Galatian churches that they are capable and responsible to remove even him, an apostle, if he preaches a false gospel. Galatians 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed or cut off. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul, again, noting the authority is placed where? Not in apostolic authority, ultimately in this case, apostolic authority for what is sound doctrine, but for the dealing with in local authority on earth in regards to Christ's church, that authority is placed within the hands of God's people to work and to watch, to tend and to keep, to be these priest kings. You could also go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul refers to a case of church discipline having been decided by the majority. Well, how do you know if there's a majority? Because you have some idea of who this body is. And there's some sense of ruling, it would seem that they've come to a decision to say, by a majority, we have decided to do this, exercising this role and privilege and responsibility that they've been given as Christ's church. So here's the bottom line. The constant pattern and prescription of the New Testament teaching is that the gathered congregation, the local church, is responsible to identify and maintain the who and the what of the gospel. That is your job, Veritas Church, to tend and to keep, to work and to watch, to identify the what and the who according to Christ's teaching. So when we say working together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry in this church, remember that's why we're talking about all of this, this clause within the covenant, working together for the continuance of a faithful gospel ministry in this church, what that means is that the membership is saying we're responsible to guard the gospel. That is a wonderful, sober, and joyous responsibility. We're responsible 
We're looking at one another saying, we're responsible to guard the gospel. It's been placed in our hands. It's a stewardship to work and to watch. And so this guarding of the gospel, if you want to be even more specific, it typically is exercised or carried out three different ways. One, um, thinking within the life of a church, in receiving, dismissing, or disciplining members. That's the way we're guarding the gospel. Think about what happened just in recent months as we brought in several new members. They sat through a membership class where they heard the teaching of this church. So they, in good conscience, could say, hey, that's what I believe the Bible teaches too. Yes, I want to join this church, be a member of this church, to work out my discipleship with this body. Then, after they met with each of the pastors and we got to sit with them, they shared their testimony before you, the local church. Whether you realized it or not, what you were doing there was listening for the who and the what. What is the gospel? Did they profess the same Christ? Do they believe in the same Christ that I do? Are we trying to slip some Mormon in the back door here that's going to teach something that is contrary to Scripture? If we are, I'm raising my hand. I don't think that's the what of the gospel. And then the who. Because we specifically said, let's talk about your testimony. How did you come to Christ? How has he changed you? How is he changing you? What are you desirous of? And you have the opportunity to get to know. And then this membership is brought before the body. We're saying, okay, if anybody has any concerns or questions, it's your responsibility to speak up. The elders are making recommendations to you, but church gathered here, you have this responsibility to work and to watch, to tend and to keep, to answer the who and the what of the gospel. And so that is why this understanding of identifying, receiving, dismissing, and then disciplining members ultimately is given to the body. And so the same thing would happen if there were some circumstance within our church where we could no longer affirm the profession of one particular member, that that same thing kind of in reverse order is brought before the membership. And again, the who and the what of the gospel is put before the church. What is sound doctrine? And what does sound doctrine look like in a life? It's also worked out in the selecting and affirming of its officers or elders and deacons. We saw this played out even within the last year. Pastor Eric didn't bring me up on a Sunday and put a sword on my shoulder and said, I knight you as the next pastor of Veritas Church. Your elders didn't stand before you and said, hey, we met this guy. We've talked to him a bit. We'd like to introduce your new pastor. That's not what happened either. All of those men said, we've been considering this man. We've been getting to know him. And now we'd like you to get to know him as well, to listen, to hear his teaching, have some memorable question and answer nights to walk through all of this so that at the end of the day, what? You, the membership, are responsible to affirm this man or not because that authority of the guarding of the gospel plays out in large part in the affirming of its officers. And then thirdly, the way this also works out practically is anything else that would significantly impact the integrity and viability of a church's gospel ministry. This is a junk drawer term meaning, is there something, some change, some move that would impact our gospel ministry? Well, then that has to involve the membership. And if you notice, each one of these three 
three areas are typically the areas that we would ask a church to vote on. Because that vote is the exercising of those keys saying yes or no. Affirming, denying. Saying in or out. Saying yes and amen or no, I, I, I have concerns. So those areas are the reason that a church actually comes together as a congregation and says, church, let's exercise the authority that Christ has given to us in line with his teaching as we want to see the church ordered according to his mind, and we have this responsibility to guard the gospel. That's why we can say the health of a local church and the continuance of its faithful gospel ministry is reliant in large part upon the faithfulness of its members. Let's pause here a second before we go into the second section. What questions do you have so far as we think through a member being this kind of priest king, guarding, keeping, watching, answering the two questions of the what of the gospel and the who of the gospel? Any questions or observations in what we've unpacked so far? If you didn't hear all in the back corner, I'll repeat. I'll just, I'll synthesize. Bob basically says you can't be a Lone Ranger. Um, it's impossible to be a Christian that's detached from the local church. And to his point, even being present and just sitting in a chair, and that's it, is not really the description of faithful church membership. It involves a participation. That's why we use words like fellowship. That doesn't just mean a casserole. It means you're actually sharing in something, and what we're sharing in is our union in Christ. So, good observation. I like the, uh, the King James rendering of uh, Ephesians 4, 16, uh, because it emphasizes the fact that the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. Yeah, I think the ESV says the same thing, so I like it too. <laughs> uh, what it says there, making... Uh, by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You're absolutely right. You cannot escape what Paul's getting at there, that this is a ministry that's shared, that it is a participation in that. Any other questions on this section here before we move to kind of the next section? Casanelli. So it would have to do with authority. And think back to Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, go therefore. So we have a mediated authority. On what authority do you have the right to tell anyone to repent and believe? That authority only comes by the authority of Christ. And so a king has a particular authority that he's responsible for, right? Think of all the kingly duties of watching over. But the king alone is not the sovereign. Every king that we read about on earth ultimately has another sovereign above, which is the Lord Jesus. And so we recognize when we say we're kings, we're not saying 
we're reigning unto ourselves, we understand we've been given a particular degree, aspect of authority that we're responsible for and that we'll be accountable to, but we are to do something, to work and to watch. So the work portion would be kind of the summation of the biblical theology of the kingship of what we've been given. The watch portion, more or less the priestly portion of that. So, okay, let's look at the second portion, um, bottom of page two. Striving for a faithful gospel ministry, but then let's think about sustaining a faithful gospel ministry. What are the marks of a particular local church? Notice that in this clause, what the covenant says is not only that we'll work together for the continuance of it, so that's what we've been considering thus far, but as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. Why is this language here? Why of all things would Christians seek to call this out? Well, let's define some terms here. Worship. It's not just the singing. It doesn't mean you're like, yes, I get to actually pick the songs and lead the singing. It says right there in the covenant, give me a microphone. <laughs> it's not what it means. Worship is not simply singing the songs, but the gathering itself. What are we doing? And this gets at the important aspects of what ought a church do when she gathers. What is Christ commanded that we do when we gather each Lord's Day? This gets into some of the understanding of why... Um, Reformers and Bible students have referred to what's called the regulative principle, meaning what outlines or what are the oughts that we must do when we gather? Are we free to do whatever we want as long as it's not forbidden in Scripture? Or has God taken great means to actually teach and to give to us and say, this is who I am, this is how I am to be worshipped? That second clause seems to actually be very consistent with the way that God has always revealed himself and called his people unto himself. Have you wondered why there's so much detail and instruction, especially as you're going through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy any, through the year in a Bible reading plans? People want to say amen as you're in the middle of that right now. It would seem, just even at a high level, God seems to care about how he's worshipped. Now, why would that change when it comes to the New Testament? Does God suddenly say, I don't really care how you worship me? Well, no, he's unchanging. And the same God that revealed himself in the Old Testament is the same God that revealed himself in the New Testament. So would it be too far of a leap to say that when his body gathers in this new covenant community that he's given instruction as to how his people should worship? Yes. That's what this regulative principle is getting at, the consistency of what's revealed in Scripture. What do we see in Scripture that God has commanded be done when this church gathered? It's been summarized in a helpful kind of five um, bullet point way. If, it, if it's helpful for you, I'll pass it along. It has to do with, each one has to do with the Word. What do we do when we gather? We read the Word. We sing the Word. We preach the Word. We pray the Word. And we see the Word. Some of those are pretty self-explanatory. Read the word. Think of Paul's instruction to Timothy. Give attention to the reading of the scriptures. The whole purpose of 1 Timothy, that you would know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. There's something important about just the reading of the scriptures. Obviously then, the singing of the word. Colossians 3.16, where it's talking about singing together to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. 
We're supposed to sing. Obviously, the preaching of the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. Pray. We're commanded to pray. 1 Timothy 2. Obviously, other places in Colossians and Ephesians. And then see the word. What do we mean by that? Well, the ordinances. The Lord's Supper. Baptism. What are we seeing there? Oh, we're seeing the gospel. We're seeing the word displayed. We're commanded to baptize. We're commanded to come to the Lord's table. So what we're saying is that we are going to sustain its worship in the sense we're saying we care about what we do when we gather because God has given us an instruction. We're going to sustain that. We're going to continue that as a part of a faithful gospel ministry. It's worship. Then he notices, you notice there that it also says it's ordinances, calling this out specifically. The two practices that Christ ordained to mark out his church. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are the practices that are to mark out a church. Baptism, it's the sign of the new covenant applied to the members of the new covenant. The Lord's table, it's this renewal of that same testimony as we consider ourselves as members as a part of Christ's body united to himself and to one another. Well, then it goes on. It also says not only the worship and the ordinances, but the discipline. And we think, talk about discipline. Remember, there's two aspects. There's formative and corrective. When we hear discipline, it's not always or only the corrective sort of church discipline. There's also formative discipline, as any parent or any coach knows, that there's an aspect of instruction or discipline that's formative as it's shaping and creating. So when we think about discipline, we're thinking both. What is going to form the church and strengthen her? And what is going to correct the church when needed? That umbrella statement is discipline. And so as members, we are covenanting. That's our responsibility to make sure that the doctrine of the church and the, dis- or excuse me, the discipline of the church is carried out according to Christ's word. And then lastly, this, this doctrine. Again, sound doctrine is key to a healthy church because it's through the teaching of the scriptures that we're shaped, we're formed, we're directed as God's people. And when the doctrine of a church runs contrary to scripture, it's going to inevitably ruin its hearers. So at this point, it's helpful to keep in mind, to remind ourselves or inform ourselves, the historical definition of a true church. And this takes shape in an interesting time in church history, as in large part it comes out of the concerns within the Reformation, as many are asking, okay, how do you recognize a true church? The Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century basically argued that Christ preserved the true church through the work of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, And the true church is really easy to recognize because it's in fellowship with the Pope. That's how you know. Next question. And any church that doesn't submit to the Pope, it's a false church. Reformers cleared their voice and said, open the scriptures. I have a problem with that. They argued that the true church is not marked by submission to supposedly infallible apostolic office of the papacy, but acceptance of the apostolic truth, the apostles' doctrine, is what we're saying. The general recognition of the word as the mark of the true church, it became even more specific as 
three or two, depending on who you read, marks of the church were clearly defined. A faithful church is marked out by the preaching of the word and the faithful administration of the ordinances, which includes the faithful um, carrying out of the discipline. So word, ordinances, subpoint, which includes the discipline. That's how you know a faithful church. Going all the way back to the beginning, the what and the who. A faithful church is marked out by its submission to God's word as it faithfully proclaims the word and then it carries out the responsibilities of that through the ordinances. Let me close. We've got about four minutes. Let me just sum this up. If you want to go deeper on this, here's a, we've got, I think, a few of these left. We need to reorder. Um, helpful little booklets called Understanding the Congregation's Authority. It's, I don't know, 60 pages. A lot of what we're covering in here, you're going to find echoes of in here. Helpful if you want to drill down on any one of these particular topics. But let me just read a paragraph or two that basically sums up what we're getting at this morning. God created you like Adam to be a priest king, mediating God's own rule through your rule over creation. Yet like Adam, you rebelled and cast off God's rule. Salvation came when Christ united you to the new covenant in his blood and granted you his spirit. You were born again. You repented of your self-rule and followed the second Adam, the king and high priest Jesus, putting your trust in his perfect life, sin-paying death, and death-defeating resurrection. Jeremiah's promise now applied to you. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least unto the greatest. In order to be visibly recognized as a follower of Christ and a citizen of his kingdom, you submitted yourself to baptism in a local church because Jesus has granted such covenanted gatherings of believers the authority to represent heaven's rule on earth. They baptized you into his name, uniting you to themselves and publicly reinstalled you into Adam's office of priest king. You therefore joined them in this work of affirming heaven's rule on earth and keeping the temple consecrated to the Lord, which means pronouncing together with this church, this is a true confession, and these are true confessors. You remain accountable to Christ and his people on an ongoing basis through your participating regularly in the Lord's Supper, which both declares Christ's death and affirms your membership in the one body, the church. To that end, you examine yourself while recognizing the body because you know that's your job. Like a priest is to protect the line between what is holy and unholy. And your membership in the church and participation in the supper means that outside of the gathering, you wear his name and that everything you do speaks of him. Like a king, furthermore, you want to conquer territory and bring all things under the rule of God. So you strive to make and build up disciples living out the gospel in word and deed among fellow believers in unbelieving neighborhoods. Such is the life of a priest king. Such is the work of a church member. Could have just read that at the beginning. We could have gone home. <laughs> Emphasizing that, and that is so much of what's here, why it's in the church covenant, because of what it's revealed in the storyline of Scripture as to who God is, who we are, and what it means to be a part of his, his church. So, We'll continue with the second clause in this paragraph uh, next week as it kind of picks up on this next theme about supporting this gospel ministry and how that works out in the life of a church. Let me pray and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful 
gracious privilege to be united to yourself, the way that it transforms us, our identity and who we are, our relationship to you, and that you've give us, given us this somber and joyful responsibility to be members of your body. Lord, help us to grow in what it means to be uh, these faithful members, to be faithful covenant members, to be faithful priests and kings in your spiritual house that you're building up. Lord, continue to teach us. Give us humble hearts that we might grow, that we might see much fruit in our midst, and that above all, your name might be glorified, we pray. Amen. All right.